Disc 4 So they went forward, hopefully, seeing the mist clear a little in front of them, so that the torch made a longer beam for them to see by. Now and again, when their feet knocked against something hard, they felt for the rails, but they could not find even one. Let's shout, said Julian at last. So they shouted loudly, George! Anne! Can you hear us? They stood and listened. No answer. George! yelled Dick. Timmy! They thought they heard a far-off bark. That was Timmy, said Julian. Over there! They stumbled along and then shouted again. But this time there was no bark at all. Not a sound came out of that dreadful mist, which had now closed tightly round them again. We'll be walking in it all night long, said Julian desperately. Why did we leave the girls? Suppose this frightful fog doesn't clear by tomorrow. Sometimes it lasts for days. What a horrible idea, said Dick lightly, sounding much more cheerful than he felt. I don't think we need worry about the girls, Jew. Timmy's with them, and he can easily take them back to the stables across the moor in the mist. Dogs don't mind fogs. Julian felt most relieved. He hadn't thought of that. Oh, yes. I'd forgotten old Tim, he said. Well, seeing that the girls will probably be all right with Timmy to guide them, let's sit down somewhere and have a rest. I'm tired out. Here's a good thick bush, said Dick. Let's get into the middle of it if we can and keep the damp out of us. Oh, thank goodness it's not a gorse bush. I wish I knew if the girls had had the sense not to wait for us any longer, but to try to find their way back down the lines, said Julian. I wonder where they are now. Anne and George were no longer where Julian and Dick had left them. They had waited and waited, and then had become very anxious indeed. Something's happened, said George. I think we ought to go and get help, Anne. We can easily follow the railway down to where we have to break off for the stable. Timmy will know anyway. Don't you think we ought to go back and get help? Yes, I do, said Anne, getting up. Come on, George. Gosh, this mist is worse than ever. We'll have to be careful we don't lose the lines. Even Timmy might find it hard to smell his way in this fog. They got up. Anne followed George, and Timmy followed behind, looking puzzled. He couldn't understand this night-time wandering about at all. Anne and George kept closely to the railway lines, walking slowly along, shining the light of the torch downwards and following carefully. After a time, George stopped, puzzled. This line's broken here, she said. There's no more of it. That's funny. I don't remember it being as badly broken as this. The lines simply stop. I can't see any more. Oh, George, said Anne, peering down. Do you know what we've done? We've come all the way up the lines again, instead of going down them homewards. How could we have been so mad? Look, this is where they break off, so the old engine must be somewhere near, and the quarry. Blow, said George, quite in despair. What asses we are! It shows how we can lose our sense of direction in a mist like this. 
I can't see or hear anything of the boys, said Anne fearfully. George, let's go to the quarry and wait there till daylight comes. I'm cold and tired. We can squeeze into one of those warm sand caves. All right, said George, very much down in the dumps. Come along, and for goodness sake, don't let's lose our way to the quarry. Chapter 17 Prisoners Together The two girls and Timmy made their way carefully, hoping to come across the lines that led to the quarry. They were lucky. They went across the gap in the lines, where once, long ago, the travellers had wrenched out the rails and came to where they began again and led to the edge of the quarry. Here they are, said George, thankfully. Now we're all right. We've only just got to follow these and we'll be in the quarry. I hope it will be warmer than here. <sighs> this mist is terribly cold and clammy. It came up so suddenly, said Anne, shining her torch downwards. I couldn't believe my eyes when I looked round and saw it creeping up on us. I... She stopped suddenly. Timmy had given a low growl. What's up, Tim? whispered George. He stood quite still, his hackles up and his tail motionless. He looked steadfastly into the mist. Oh, dear, what can be the matter now? whispered Anne. I can't hear a thing, can you? They listened. No, there was nothing to hear at all. They went on into the quarry, thinking that Timmy might have heard a rabbit or hedgehog and growled at it as he sometimes did. Timmy heard a sound and ran to the side, lost in the mist at once. He suddenly yelped loudly. Then there was a heavy thud and no more sound from Timmy. Timmy! What's happened? Timmy, come here! shouted George at the top of her voice. But no Timmy came. The girls heard the sound of something heavy being dragged away, and George ran after the sound. Timmy! Oh, Timmy, what's happened? she cried. Where are you? Are you hurt? The mist swirled round, and she tried to beat against it with her fists, angry that she could not see. Tim! Tim! Then a pair of hands took her arms from behind, and a voice said, Now, you come with me. You were warned not to snoop about on the moor. George struggled violently, less concerned for herself than for Timmy. Where's my dog? she cried. What have you done to him? I knocked him on the head, said the voice, which sounded very like Sniffer's father. He's all right, but he won't feel himself for a bit. You can have him back if you're sensible. George wasn't sensible. She kicked and fought and wriggled and struggled. It was no use. She was held in a grip like iron. She heard Anne scream once and knew that she had been caught too. When George was too tired to struggle any more, she was led firmly out of the quarry with Anne. Where's my dog? she sobbed. What have you done with him? He's all right said the man behind her. But if you make any more fuss, I'll give him another blow on the head. Now, will you be quiet? George was quiet at once. She was taken with Anne across the moor for what seemed like miles, but was really only the fairly short distance between the quarry and the traveller's camp. Are you bringing my dog? asked George, unable to contain her fears about Timmy. Yeah, somebody's got him 
said her captor. You shall have him back safe and sound if you do what you're told. George had to be content with that. What a night! The boy's gone, Timmy hurt, she and Anne captured, and this horrible wreathing mist all the time. The mist cleared a little as they came near to the traveller's camp. The hill behind seemed to keep it off. George and Anne saw the light of a fire and of a few lanterns here and there. More men were gathered together waiting. Anne thought she could see Sniffer and Liz in the background, but she couldn't be sure. If only I could get hold of Sniffer, she thought. He would soon find out if Timmy is really hurt. Oh, Sniffer, do come nearer if it's you. Their captors took them to the little fire and made both girls sit down. One of the men there exclaimed in surprise. But these are not those two boys. This is a boy and a girl, not as tall as the others were. We're two girls, said Anne, thinking that the men might treat George less roughly if they knew she was not a boy. I'm a girl, and so is she. She got a scowl from George, but took no notice. This was not the time to pretend anything. These men were ruthless and very angry. They thought their plans had gone wrong, all because of two boys. Perhaps when they found they had got two girls, they would let them go. The men began to question them. Where are the boys, then? We've no idea. Lost in the mist, said Anne. We all went out to go back home and got separated. So George, I mean Georgina, and I went back to the quarry. Did you hear the plane? Of course. Did you see or hear it dropping anything? We didn't see anything drop. We heard it, said Anne. George stared at her furiously. Why was Anne giving all this away? Perhaps she thought that Timmy would be given back to them if they proved helpful. George immediately changed her mind about feeling cross with Anne. If only Timmy were all right. Did you pick up what the plane dropped? The man rapped out the question so sharply that Anne jumped. What should she say? Oh, yes, she heard herself saying. We picked up a few strange parcels. What was in them, do you know? Never you mind said the man. What did you do with the parcels? George stared at Anne, wondering what she was going to say. Surely, surely she wouldn't give that secret away. I didn't do anything with them, said Anne in an innocent voice. The boys said they would hide them, so they went off into the mist with them. But they didn't come back, so George and I went to the quarry again. That's when you caught us. The men talked among themselves in low voices. Then Sniffer's father turned to the girls again. Where did the boys hide these packets? How do I know, said Anne. I didn't go with them. I didn't see what they did with them. Do you think they would have still got them with them? asked the man. Why don't you go and find the boys and ask them, said Anne. I haven't seen or heard of the boys since they left us and went into the mist. I don't know what became of them or the parcels. They're probably lost somewhere on the moors, said the old grey-haired traveller. With the packets, we'll look for the boys tomorrow. They won't get home in this. We'll fetch them back here. They wouldn't come, said George. As soon as they saw you, they'd run. You'd never catch them. Anyway, they'd get back home as soon as the mist cleared. <laughs>
Take these girls away, said the old traveller, sounding tired of them. Put them in the far cave and tie them up. Where's my dog? shouted George suddenly. You bring me my dog! You haven't been very helpful, said the old traveller. We'll question you again tomorrow, and if you are more helpful, you shall have your dog. Two men took the girls away from the fire and over to the hill. A large opening led into the strange hill. One of the men had a lantern and led the way, the other man walking behind. A passage led straight into the hill. There was sand underfoot, and it seemed to Anne as if even the walls were made of sand. How strange! The hill was honeycombed with passages. They crisscrossed and forked like burrows in a rabbit warren. Anne wondered however the men could find their way. They came at last to a cave that must have been right in the heart of the hill. A cave with a sandy floor and a post that was driven deeply into the ground. Ropes were fastened firmly to it. The two girls looked at them in dismay. Surely they were not going to be tied up like prisoners. But they were. The ropes were fastened firmly round their waists and knotted at the back. The knots were traveller's knots, firm, tight and complicated. It would take the girls hours to unpick those, even supposing they could manage to reach right round to their backs. There you are, said the men, grinning at the two angry girls. Maybe in the morning you will remember where those packets were put. You go and get my dog, ordered George. But they only laughed loudly and went out of the cave. It was stuffy and hot in there. George was worried to death about Timmy, but Anne was almost too tired to think. She fell asleep, sitting up uncomfortably with the ropes round her waist and the knots digging into her back. George sat brooding. Timmy, where was he? Was he badly hurt? George was very miserable indeed. She didn't go to sleep. She sat there, worrying, wide awake. She made an attempt to get at the knots behind her, but it was no use. She couldn't. Suddenly, she thought she heard a noise. Was that someone creeping up the passage to the cave? She felt frightened. Oh, if only Timmy were here. <sniffs> Gracious goodness! It must be Sniffer, thought George. And at that moment, she almost loved the dirty little traveller boy. Sniffer? she called quietly and put on her torch. Sniffer's head appeared, and then his body. He was crawling quietly up the passage on all fours. He came right into the cave and stared at her and the sleeping Anne. I've sometimes been tied up here too, he said. Sniffer, how is Timmy? asked George anxiously. Tell me quickly. Oh, he's all right, said Sniffer. He's just got a bad cut in his head. I bathed it for him. He's tied up too, and he's mad about it. Sniffer, listen, go and get Timmy and bring him to me, said George breathlessly. And bring me a knife too to cut these ropes. Will you? Can you? Oh, I don't know, said Sniffer, looking frightened. My father would half kill me. Sniffer, is there anything you want? Anything you've always wanted, said George. I'll give it to you if you do this for me. I promise you. I want a bike, 
said Sniffer, surprisingly. And, and I want to live in a house and ride my bike to school. I'll see that you have what you want, Sniffer, said George wildly. Only do, do go and get Timmy and a knife. You got here without being seen. You can surely get back again safely with Timmy. Think of that bike. Sniffer thought of it. Then he nodded and disappeared down the passage as silently as he had come. George waited and waited. Would he bring dear old Timmy to her or would he be caught? Chapter 18 George's Trick George sat in the darkness of the cave, hearing Anne's peaceful breathing nearby, waiting for Sniffer to come back. She was longing to see Timmy again. Was the cut on his head very bad? A thought came into her mind. She would send Timmy back to the stables with a note. He was very clever. He knew what to do when he had a note tied to his collar. Then help would come very quickly indeed. Timmy would know his way all right out of this hill once he had been in it. Ah, here was Sniffer coming back again. Was Timmy with him? She heard Sniffer's sniff, 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 but no sound of Timmy. Her heart sank. Sniffer appeared cautiously in the cave. I didn't dare to take Timmy, he said. My father has him tied up too near to him, and I'd have woken him. But I've brought you a knife, look. Thank you, Sniffer, said George, taking the knife and putting it into her pocket. Listen, there's something important I'm going to do, and you've got to help. I'm scared, said Sniffer. I'm really scared. Think of that bicycle, said George. A red one, perhaps with silver handles? Sniffer thought of it. All right, he said. What are you going to do? I'm going to write a note, said George, feeling in her pocket for her notebook and pencil. And I want you to tie it onto Timmy's collar, under his chin, and set him free somehow. Will you do that? He'll run off back to the stables with the note, and then Anne and I will be rescued, and you will get the most beautiful bicycle in the world. And a house to live in, said Sniffer at once, so that I can ride my bike to school. All right, said George, hoping that somehow he could have that too. Now, wait a minute. She scribbled the note, but she had hardly written more than a few words when a sound came up the passage. Someone was coughing. It's my father, said Sniffer in fright. Listen, if you cut your ropes and escape, can you find your way out from here? He's very twisty and turny. I don't know. I, I don't think I can, whispered George in a panic. I'll leave Patrins for you, said Sniffer. Look out for them. Now, I'm going to slip into the cave next door and wait till my father's finished talking to you. Then I'll go back to Timmy. He slipped out just in time. The lantern shone into George's cave and Sniffer's father stood there. Have you seen Sniffer? he asked. I missed him when I woke just now. If I catch him in here, I'll whip him till he squeals. Sniffer? He's not here, said George, trying to sound surprised. Look round the cave and see. The man caught sight of the notebook and pencil in George's hand. What's that you're writing? 
he said suspiciously and took it from her. So, you're writing for help, are you? he said. And how do you think you're going to get help, I'd like to know? Who's going to take this note home for you, Sniffer? No, said George truthfully. The man frowned as he looked again at the note. Look here, he said. You can write another note to those two boys, and I'll tell you what to say. No, said George. Oh, yes, you will, said the man. I'm not going to hurt those boys. I'm just going to get back those packets from wherever they are hidden. Do you want your dog back safely? Yes, said George with a gulp. Well, if you don't write this note, you won't see him again, said the man. Now then, take your pencil and write in that notebook of yours. George took up her pencil. This is what you must write, said the man, frowning as he thought hard. Wait a minute, said George. How are you going to get this note to the boys? You don't know where they are. You won't be able to find them if this mist still goes on. The man scratched his head and thought. The only way to get the note to them is to tie it on my dog's collar and send him to find them, said George. If you bring him here to me, I can make him understand. He always does what I tell him. You mean he'll take the note to whoever you tell him to take it to, said the man, his eyes gleaming. Well, write it then. Say this. We are prisoners. Follow Timmy, and he will bring you to us and you can save us. Then sign your name, whatever it is. It's Georgina, said George firmly. You go and get my dog while I write the note. The man turned and went. George looked after him, her eyes bright. He thought he was making her play a trick on Julian and Dick to bring them here so that they could be threatened and questioned about the packets and where they were hidden. But I'm going to play a trick on him, thought George. I'm going to tell Timmy to take the note to Henry, and she'll be suspicious and get Captain Johnson to follow Tim back here, and that will give the travellers an awful shock. I expect the captain will be sensible enough to get the police as well. Aha! I'm playing a trick too. In ten minutes' time, Sniffer's father returned with Timmy. It was a rather subdued Timmy, with a very bad cut on his head, which really needed stitching. He pattered soberly across to George, and she flung her arms round his neck and cried into his thick hair. Oh, does your head hurt you? she said. I'll take you to the vet when I get back, Tim. You can get back as soon as we've got those two boys here and they've told us where those packets are hidden, said the man. Timmy was licking George as if he would never stop and his tail waved to and fro, to and fro. He couldn't understand what was happening at all. Why was George here? Never mind, he was with her again. He settled down on the floor with a thump and put his head on her knee. Write the note, said the man, and tie it onto his collar, on the top, so that it can easily be seen. I've written it, said George. The traveller held out a dirty hand for it and read it. We are prisoners. Follow Timmy and he will bring you to us and you can save us, Georgina. Is that really your name, Georgina? asked the man. 
George nodded. It was one of the few times she ever owned to a girl's name. She tied the note firmly to Timmy's collar on the top of his neck. It was quite plainly to be seen. Then she gave him a hug and spoke urgently to him. Go to Henry, Tim. Go to Henry. Do you understand, Timmy, dear? Take this note to Henry. She tapped the paper on his collar as he listened to her. Then she gave him a push. Go along. Don't stay here any longer. Go and find Henry. Hadn't you better tell him the other boy's name too, said the man. Oh, no, I don't want to muddle, Timmy, said George hastily. Henry, Henry, Henry. Woof, said Timmy, and George knew that he understood. She gave him another push. Go then, she said. Hurry. Timmy gave her rather a reproachful look, as if to say, You haven't let me stay with you very long. Then he padded off down the passage, the note showing clearly on his collar. I'll bring the boys up here as soon as they come with the dog, said the man, and he turned on his heel and went out. George wondered if Sniffer was still about, and she called him, but there was no answer. He must have slipped away down the passages back to his caravan. Anne woke up then and wondered where she was. George switched on her torch again and explained all that had happened. You should have woken me, said Anne. Oh, blow these ropes, they're so uncomfortable. I've got a knife now, said George. Sniffer gave it to me. Shall I cut our ropes? Oh, yes, said Anne in delight. But don't let's try and escape yet. It's still night time, and if that mist is about, we'll only get lost. We can pretend we're still tied up if anyone comes. George cut her own ropes with Sniffer's exceedingly blunt knife. Then she cut Anne's. Oh, what a relief to lie down properly and not to have to sit up all the time and feel the knots at the back. Now, do remember, if we hear anyone coming, we must tie the ropes loosely round us, she said. We will stay here till we know it's day and perhaps we can find out if the mist is still about or if it's gone. If it's gone, we'll go. They fell asleep on the sandy floor, both glad to lie down flat. Nobody came to disturb them, and they slept on and on, tired out. Where were the boys? Still under the bush, half sleeping, half waking, for they were cold and uncomfortable. They hoped the girls were now safely at home. They must have gone right down the railway and made their way back to the stables, thought Julian, every time he awoke. I do hope they're safe, and Timmy too. Thank goodness he is with them. But Timmy wasn't with them, of course. He was padding across the misty moor all by himself, puzzled and with a badly aching head. Why had George sent him to Henry? He didn't like Henry. He didn't think that George did either. And yet she had sent him to find her. Very strange. Still, George had given him his orders, and he loved her and always obeyed her. He padded over the heather and grass. He didn't bother about keeping to the railway line. He knew the way back without even thinking about it. It was still night, though soon the dawn would come. But the mist was so thick that even the dawn would not be able to break through it.
the sun would have to remain hidden behind the thick swathes of mist. Timmy came to the stables. He paused to remember which was Henry's bedroom. Ah, yes, it was upstairs, next to the room that Anne and George had had. Timmy leapt into the kitchen through a window left open for the cat. He padded upstairs and came to Henry's room. He pushed at the door and it opened. In he went and put his paws on her bed. Woof, he said in her ear. Woof, woof, woof. Chapter 19. Good old Tim. Henry had been fast asleep and snoring. She awoke with a tremendous jump when she felt Timmy's paw on her arm and heard his sharp little bark. Oh, what is it? she said, sitting up straight in bed and fumbling for her torch. She was quite panic-stricken. She switched on the torch with trembling fingers and then saw Timmy, his big brown eyes looking at her beseechingly. Why, Timmy, said Henry in amazement. Timmy! Whatever are you doing here? Have the others come back? No, they couldn't have. Not in the middle of the night. Why have you come then, Timmy? Woof, said Timmy, trying to make her understand that he was bringing a message. Henry put out her hand to pat his head and suddenly caught sight of the paper tied to his collar at the back. What's this on your collar? she said and reached out for it. Why? It's paper, tied on too. It must be a message. She untied the piece of paper and unrolled it. She read, We are prisoners. Follow Timmy and he will bring you to us and you can save us. Georgina. Henry was astounded. She looked at Timmy and he looked back, wagging his tail. He pawed at her arm impatiently. Henry read the note again. Then she pinched herself to make sure she was not dreaming. Oh, no, I'm awake all right, she said. Timmy, is this note true? Are they prisoners? And who does we mean? George and Anne, or the whole four? Oh, Timmy, I do wish you could speak. Timmy wished the same. He poured energetically at Henry. She suddenly saw the cut on his head and was horrified. You're hurt, Timmy. Oh, you poor, poor thing. Who did that to you? You ought to have that wound seen to. Timmy certainly had a very outsized headache, but he couldn't bother to think about that. He gave a little whine and ran to the door and back. Yes, I know you want me to follow you, but I've got to think, said Henry. If Captain Johnson was here, I'd go and fetch him, but he's away for the night, Timmy. And I'm sure Mrs. Johnson would have the fright of her life if I fetched her. I simply don't know what to do. Woof, said Timmy scornfully. It's all very well to say woof like that, said Henry. But I'm not as brave as you are. I pretend I am, Timmy, but I'm not really. I'm afraid of following you. I'm afraid of going to find the others. I might be caught too. And there's a terrible mist, Timmy, you know. Henry slid out of bed, and Timmy looked suddenly hopeful. Was this silly girl going to make up her mind at last? Timmy, there's no grown-up here tonight except Mrs. Johnson, 
And I really can't wake her, said Henry. She's had such a very hard, busy day. I'm going to dress and then get William. He's only eleven, I know, but he's very sensible. She dressed quickly in her riding things and then set off to William's room. He slept by himself across the landing. Henry walked in and switched on her torch. William awoke at once. Who's there? he demanded, sitting up at once. What do you want? It's me, Henry, said Henry. William, a most extraordinary thing has happened. Timmy has arrived in my room with a note on his collar. Read it. William took the note and read it. He was most astonished. Look, he said, George has signed herself Georgina. She wouldn't do that unless things were very urgent. She never, never lets herself be called anything but George. We'll have to follow Tim and go, at once, too. But I can't walk miles in a mist over the moor, said Henry in a panic. We don't need to. We'll saddle our horses and go on those, said William, beginning to dress and sounding very sensible indeed. Timmy will lead the way. You go and get the horses out. Do back up, Henry. The others may be in danger. You're acting like a Henrietta. That made Henry cross. She went out of the room at once and down into the yard. What a pity Captain Johnson happened to be away just that night. He would have decided everything at once. Courage came to her when she got the horses. They were surprised, but quite willing to go for a nighttime ride, even in this thick mist. William came up in a very short time with Timmy behind him. Timmy was delighted to have William with him. He liked him, but he was not very fond of Henry. He ran forward just in front of the horses, and they followed behind. Both Henry and William had excellent torches, and kept shining them downwards so that they should not miss Timmy. He did go out of sight once or twice, but came back immediately when he heard the horses stopping. Over the moor they rode. They didn't follow the railway, of course. Timmy didn't need to. He knew the way perfectly. Once, he stopped and sniffed the air. What had he smelt? Henry and William had no idea, but Timmy was puzzled by what he had smelt on the misty air. Surely he had smelt the smell of the two boys, Julian and Dick. It had come on the air for a moment or two, and Timmy was half inclined to follow it and see if the smell was right. Then he remembered George and Anne, and went on through the swirling mist. The boys were actually not very far away when Timmy smelt them. They were still in the middle of the bush, trying to keep warm and sleep. If only they had known that Timmy was near with Henry and William, but they didn't. Timmy led the way. Soon they came to the quarry, but did not see it because of the mist. They went round it, led by Timmy, and rode towards the traveller's camp. Timmy slowed down, and they took warning. He's getting near wherever he wants to take us, whispered William. Had we better dismount and tie the horses up, do you think? Their hooves may give a warning that we are near. Yes, yes, William, said Henry, thinking that the boy was really very sensible. They dismounted quietly and tied the horses to a nearby birch tree. They were quite near the hill in front of which was the traveller's camp. The mist was not so thick here, and the two suddenly caught sight of a dark, shadowy caravan, outlined against a campfire left burning nearby. 
We'll have to be very quiet, whispered William. Timmy's brought us to the travellers' camp on the moor. I had an idea that he would. The others must be held prisoner somewhere near. Be as quiet as you can. Timmy watched them dismount. He hung his head, panting, his tail down. His head was hurting him very much, and he felt decidedly strange and giddy. But he must get to George. He must. He led the way to the opening in the hill. William and Henry were most astonished. They followed Timmy through the maze of passages, wondering how he knew the way so surely. But Timmy didn't falter. He only needed to go somewhere once, and after that he never forgot the way. He was going very slowly now, and his legs felt peculiar and shaky. He wanted to lie down and put his aching head on his paws. But no, he must find George. He must find George. George and Anne were lying in the little cave, asleep. They were uncomfortable, and the cave was hot, so they were restless, waking up every few minutes. But both were asleep when Timmy walked slowly into the cave and flopped down beside George. George awoke when she heard William and Henry come into the cave. She thought it might be Sniffer's father coming back, and she hastily put the ropes round her waist so that she would look as if she were still tied up. Then she heard Timmy panting and switched on her torch eagerly. It showed her Timmy and Henry and William. Henry was full of amazement when she saw George and Anne with ropes round their waists. She gaped at them. Oh, Timmy, darling, you fetched help, said George, putting her arms round his neck. Oh, Henry, I'm so glad you've come. But didn't you bring Captain Johnson too? No, he's away, said Henry. But William's here. We rode and Timmy guided us. Whatever's happened, George? Anne awoke just then and couldn't believe her eyes when she saw the visitors. There was a hasty discussion and then William spoke firmly. If you want to escape, you'd better come now while the traveller's camp is asleep. Timmy can guide us out of this rabbit warren of a hill. We'd never be able to find our way out alone. Come on. Come on, Tim, said George, shaking him gently. But poor old Timmy was feeling very peculiar. He couldn't see things properly. George's voice sounded blurred to him. His head felt as heavy as lead, and somehow his legs wouldn't carry him. The blow on his head was taking real effect now, and the hurried journey over the moor and back was making it worse. He's ill, said George in a panic. He can't get up. Oh, Timmy, what's the matter? It's that cut on his head, said William. It's pretty bad and he's worn out with coming to fetch us and running all the way back again. He can't possibly guide us back, George. We'll have to do the best we can by ourselves. Oh, poor, poor Timmy, said Anne, horrified at seeing the dog stretched out quite limp on the floor of the cave. George, can you carry him? I think so, said George, and she lugged him up in her arms. He's awfully heavy, but I think I can just manage him. Perhaps the fresh air will revive him when we get outside. But George, we don't know our way out of here, said Anne fearfully. If Timmy can't lead us, 
We're lost. We'd end up by wandering miles and miles inside the hill and never getting out. Well, we'll simply have to make a shot at it, said William. Come on, I'll lead the way. We really must go. He went out of the cave and down a passage. The others followed, George carrying the limp Timmy. But very soon, William came to a fork and stopped. Oh, dear. Do we go to the left or the right, he wondered. Nobody knew. George shone her torch here and there, trying to remember. The beam of light picked up something on the ground nearby. It was two sticks, one short and one long, in the shape of a cross. George gave an exclamation. Look, a patron, left by Sniffer to show us the way out. We have to take the passage that the long stick points to. Oh, I hope that Sniffer has left patrons at every corner and every fork. They took the right-hand way and went on, their torches making long beams in the darkness. And at every place where they might go wrong, they saw a patron, a message left by Sniffer to show them the right way to go. Another cross. We go this way, said Anne. Here's a patron again. We take this fork, said George. And so it went on until they came safely to the entrance of the hill. How thankful they were to see the mist. At least it meant that they were in the open air. Now to get to the horses, said William. They will each have to carry two of us at once, I'm afraid. And then, just as they were making their way to where they had left the horses, the travellers' dogs began to bark the place down. They've heard us, said William desperately. Buck up! We'll be stopped if we don't get off at once. Then a voice shouted loudly. I can see you over there with your torches. Stop at once. Do you hear me? Stop! Chapter 20. Excitement in the Morning The dawn was coming now. The mist was no longer full of darkness, but was white and thinning rapidly. The four children hurried to the horses, which were stamping impatiently by the trees. George couldn't go very fast because of Timmy. He really was very heavy. Suddenly, he began to struggle. The fresh, cool air had revived him, and he wanted to be set down. George put him down thankfully, and he began to bark defiantly at the travellers, who were now coming out of their caravans, their dogs with them. The four children mounted hurriedly, and the horses were surprised at the double weight. William swung his horse's head round and set off with George sitting behind him. Henry took Anne. Timmy, feeling much better, ran after them, his legs no longer feeling so shaky. The travellers ran too, shaking their fists and shouting. Sniffer's father was amazed beyond measure. Why, there were the two girls he had tied up, and that dog he had sent off to trick the other two boys on the moor. Then who were these on horseback? And how had they found their way to the hill? How had the prisoners been able to find their way out of the hill too? That was a real puzzle to Sniffer's father. The travellers tore after the horses, but the dogs contented themselves with excited barks. Not one of them dared to go after Timmy. They were afraid of him. The horses went off as fast as they dared in the mist, Timmy running in front. 
He seemed very much better, though George was afraid. It was only the excitement that now kept him going. She glanced back at the travellers. They would never catch up now, thank goodness. Somewhere behind the mist, the sun was shining. Soon it would disperse the strange fog that had come up so suddenly from the sea. She glanced down at her watch. Good gracious, could it really be almost six o'clock in the morning? It was tomorrow now. She wondered what had happened to Julian and Dick. She thought of Sniffer gratefully, and all those patrons he had left in the hill. They would never have got out but for those. She thought of Henry and William, and gave William a sudden tight hug round the waist for coming out in the middle of the night and rescuing them. Where are Julian and Dick, do you suppose? she said to William. Do you think they are still lost on the moor? Ought we to shout and look for them? No, called back William over his shoulder. We're going straight back to the stables. They can look after themselves. Dick and Julian had certainly tried to look after themselves that cold, misty night, but not very successfully. By the time that their torch showed them that it was a quarter to five by their watches, they had had enough of the bush they were in. If only they had known it, Henry and William with Timmy were just then riding over the moor, not a great distance from where they were. They got out of the bush, damp and stiff. They stretched themselves and looked into the dark night, still full of mist. Let's walk, said Julian. I can't bear keeping still in this mist. I've got my compass. If we walk due west, we should surely come to the edge of the moor, not far from Milling Green. They set off, stumbling in the now dim light of the torch, whose battery was getting low. It will give out soon, groaned Dick, giving it a shake. Blow the thing. It hardly gives us any light now, and we simply must keep looking at the compass. Julian tripped against something hard and almost fell. He snatched the torch from Dick. Quick, let me have it. He shone it on what had tripped him and gave a delighted exclamation. Look, it's a rail. We're on the railway line again. What a bit of luck. I should think so, said Dick, relieved. This torch is just about finished. Now, for goodness sake, don't let's lose this railway line. Stop at once if you can't feel it with your foot. Oh, to think we were so jolly near the line after all and didn't know it, groaned Julian. We could have been back at the stables ages ago. I do hope the girls got back safely and didn't alarm anyone about us. They'd know we would come back as soon as it was daylight anyhow, if we could follow the lines. They stumbled in at the stable's entrance about six o'clock, tired out. Nobody was yet up, it seemed. They found the garden door open, left ajar by William and Henry, and went up to the girls' room, hoping to find them in bed. But the beds were empty, of course. They went to Henry's room to ask her if she had heard anything of the girls. But her bed, though slept in, was empty too. They went across the landing to William's room, He's gone as well, said Dick in great astonishment. Where are they all? Let's wake Captain Johnson, said Julian, who had no idea that the captain was away for the night. So they awakened a very startled Mrs. Johnson and almost scared the life out of her, for she thought they were far away, camping on the moor. She was even more startled 
when she heard their tale and realised that George and Anne were missing. Where are the girls, then? she said, flinging on a dressing gown. This is serious, Julian. They might be completely lost on the moor, or those travellers might have got them. I must telephone my husband, and the police, too. Oh, dear, oh, dear, why did I ever let you go camping out? She was in the middle of telephoning, with Julian and Dick beside her, looking very anxious indeed, when the sound of horses' hooves came in the yard below. Now, goodness me, who's that? said Mrs. Johnson. Horses? Who's riding them at this time in the morning? They all went to the window and looked down into the yard. Dick gave a yell that almost made Mrs. Johnson fall out of the window. Anne! George! Look! There they are! And Timmy, too! And gosh! There's Henry and William! What is all this? Anne heard the yell and looked up. Tired as she was, she gave a cheerful wave and a grin. George gave a shout. Oh, Julian! Oh, Dick! You're back, then! We did hope you would be. After you left us, we went back up the lines the wrong way and arrived at the quarry again. And the travellers took us prisoner, yelled Anne. But, but how did Henry and William come into this? said poor Mrs. Johnson, thinking she must really still be asleep. And what's the matter with Timmy? Timmy had suddenly flopped on the ground. The excitement was over. They were home. Now he could put his poor, aching head on his paws and sleep. George was off her horse immediately. Timmy! Darling Timmy! Brave Timmy! Help me, William. I'll take him upstairs to my room and see to that cut. By this time, all the other children were awake, and there was such a pandemonium going on that Mrs. Johnson couldn't make herself heard. Children in dressing gowns and without, children shouting and yelling, children pouring into the yard and asking questions. William trying to quiet the two horses, which were getting very excited at all this sudden clamour, and all the cocks round about crowing their heads off. What an excitement! The sun suddenly shone out brilliantly, and the last wisps of mist disappeared. Hooray! That mist has gone, shouted George. The sun's out! Cheer up, Timmy. We'll be all right now. Timmy was half carried, half dragged up the stairs by William and George. George and Mrs. Johnson examined his cut head carefully and bathed it. It really should have been stitched up, said Mrs. Johnson, but it seems to be healing already. How wicked to hit a dog like that. Soon there was the sound of horses' hooves again in the yard, and Captain Johnson arrived, looking very anxious. At almost the same moment, a car slid in at the gates. A police car with two policemen who had been sent to inquire about the missing girls. Mrs. Johnson had forgotten to telephone again to say they had arrived. Oh, dear, I'm so sorry to have bothered you, said Mrs. Johnson to the police sergeant. The girls have just arrived back, but I still don't know what has really happened. Still, they're safe, so please don't bother any more. Uh, wait, said Julian, who was in the room too. I think we shall need the police. Something very peculiar has been happening up on the moor. Really? What's that? 
said the sergeant, taking out a notebook. We were camping there, said Julian, and a plane came over, very low, guided by a lamp set in a sandpit by the travellers. A lamp? Set by the travellers? said the sergeant, surprised. But why should they need to guide a plane? I suppose it landed. No, it didn't, said Julian. It came again the next night and did exactly the same thing, swooping low and circling. But this time, it dropped packages. Oh, it did, did it, said the sergeant, more interested. For the travellers to pick up by any chance? Yes, said Julian. But the plane's aim wasn't very good. And the packets fell all round us and almost hit us. We ran for shelter because we didn't know if there were any explosives or not. Did you pick up any of the packages? asked the sergeant. Julian nodded. Yes, we did, and I opened one. What was in it? Paper money. Dollars, said Julian. In one packet alone, there were scores of notes, and each note was for a hundred dollars, about fifty pounds a time. Thousands of pounds worth thrown all around us. The sergeant looked at his companion. Ah, now we know. This explains a lot that has been puzzling us, doesn't it, Wilkins? Wilkins, the other policeman, nodded grimly. It certainly does. So, that's what happens. That's how the gang get the dollars over here, from that printing press in North France. Just a nice little run in a plane. But... Why do they throw the packets down for the travellers to collect? asked Julian. Is it so that they can give them to someone else? Why don't they bring them openly into the country? Surely anyone can bring dollars here. Not forged ones, my lad, said the sergeant. These will all be forged, you mark my words. The gang have got a headquarters near London, and as soon as those packets are handed over to them by one of the travellers, they will set to work, passing them off as real ones, paying hotel bills with them, buying all kinds of goods and paying for them in notes that aren't worth a penny. Phew, said Julian. I never thought of them being forged. Oh, yes. We've known of this gang for some time, but all we knew was that they had a printing press to print the notes in North France, and that somehow... The rest of the gang here, near London, received them and passed them off as real ones, said the sergeant. But we didn't know how they were brought here, nor who took them to the gang near London. But now we know all right, said Wilkins. My word, this is a pretty scoop, sergeant. Good kids, these, finding out what we've been months trying to discover. Where are these packages, said the sergeant. Did you hide them? Did the travellers get them? No, we hid them said Julian. But I guess the travellers will be hunting all over the place for them today, so we'd better get on the moors quick, sergeant. Where did you hide them? said the sergeant. In a safe place, I hope. Oh, very, said Julian. I'll call my brother, sergeant. He'll come with us. Hey, Dick, come on in here, and you'll hear a very interesting bit of news. Chapter 21 the end of the mystery. Mrs. Johnson was amazed to hear that the police wanted Julian and Dick to go out on the moors again. But they're tired out, she said. They need something to eat. Can't it wait? 
I'm afraid not, said the sergeant. You needn't worry, Mrs. Johnson. These boys are tough. Well, actually, I don't think that the travellers can possibly find the packets, said Julian. So it wouldn't matter if we had a bite to eat. I'm ravenous. All right, said the big policeman, putting away his notebook. Have a snack and we'll go afterwards. Well, of course, George, Anne and Henry all wanted to go too, as soon as they heard about the proposed jaunt over the moors. What? Leave us out of that, said George indignantly. What a hope! Anne wants to come too. So does Henry, said Anne, looking at George, even though she didn't help to find the packages of notes. Of course Henry must come, said George at once. And Henry beamed. George had been very struck indeed with Henry's courage in coming with William to rescue her and Anne, and very pleased that she hadn't boasted about it. But Henry knew that William was the one mostly to praise, and she had been unexpectedly modest about the whole affair. It was quite a large party that set off after everyone had made a very good breakfast. Mrs Johnson had set to work cooking huge platefuls of bacon and egg, exclaiming every now and again when she thought of all that had happened up on the moors. Those travellers! And fancy that plane coming like that, dropping money all over the place, and the travellers tying up Anne and George in that hill. I never heard anything like it in my life. Captain Johnson went with the party too. He could hardly believe the extraordinary tale that the four had to tell. Five, with old Timmy. Timmy now had a beautiful patch on his head and was feeling extremely important. Wait till Liz saw that. Ten people set out, including Timmy, for William had been included in the party too. He tried to guess where Julian had hidden the notes, but he couldn't, of course. Julian firmly refused to tell anyone. He wanted it to be a real surprise. They came to the quarry at last, having walked all the way up the old railway line. Julian stood on the edge of the quarry and pointed out the travellers' camp. Look, they're leaving, he said. I bet they were afraid we'd spread the news of their behaviour after the girls escaped. Sure enough, the caravans were moving slowly away. Wilkins, as soon as you get back, give word to have every traveller watched if he leaves the caravans, said the sergeant. One of them is sure to have arranged a meeting place to give the gang the packets dropped from the plane. And if we watch those caravans and every traveller in them, we'll soon be able to put our hands on the gang that spends the forged notes. I bet it's Sniffer's father, said Dick. He's the ringleader anyway. They watched the caravans move away one by one. Anne wondered about Sniffer. So did George. What had she promised him last night if he would help them? A bicycle, and to live in a house so that he could ride it to school. Well, it wasn't likely she would ever see the little boy again, but if she did, she would certainly have to keep her word. Now, where's this wonderful hiding place? asked the sergeant, as Julian turned from watching the caravans. He had tried to make out Sniffer and Liz, but the vans were too far away. Follow me, said Julian, with a sudden grin, and led the way back up the lines to where they broke off. The gorse bush was there, and the old engine lay on its side, as before, almost hidden. Whatever's that? said the sergeant, surprised. 
It's the old puffing billy that used to pull the trucks of sand from the quarry, said Dick. Apparently, there was a quarrel long ago between the owners of the quarry and the travellers. And the travellers pulled up the lines and the engine ran off and fell over. There it's been ever since, as far as I can see. Julian went round to the funnel end and bent back the prickly gorse branch that hid it. The sergeant looked on in surprise. Dick scraped the sand out of the top of the funnel and then pulled out one of the packages. He had been afraid they would not be there. Here you are, he said, and tossed the packet to the sergeant. There are plenty more. I'll come to the one we opened in a minute. Yes, here it is. The sergeant and Wilkins were amazed to see the packages hauled up from such a peculiar hiding place. No wonder the travellers hadn't found them. Nobody would ever have looked down the funnel of the old engine, even if they had spotted it, half buried as it was. The sergeant looked at the hundred-dollar notes in the open parcel and whistled. My word, this is it. We've seen these before. Beautiful forgeries they are. If the gang had got rid of this lot, a great many people would have suffered. The money is worth nothing. How many packets did you say there were? Dozens, said Dick, and pulled more of them out of the funnel. Gosh, I can't reach the ones at the bottom. Never mind, said the sergeant. Put some sand in to hide them and I'll send a man to poke the rest out with a stick. The travellers have gone and they are the only people likely to hunt for them. Oh, this is a wonderful scoop. You kids have certainly put us on to something. I'm glad, said Julian. I say, we'd better collect all the things we left here yesterday, hadn't we? We went off in rather a hurry, you see, Sergeant, and left our things in the quarry. He and George went into the quarry to collect the things they had left there. Timmy went with them. He suddenly growled, and George stopped, her hand on his collar. What's up, Tim? Jew? There must be somebody here. Is it one of the travellers, do you think? Then Timmy stopped growling and wagged his tail. He dragged away from George's hand and ran over to one of the little caves in the sandy walls. He looked most peculiar with the patch on his head. Out of the cave came Liz. As soon as she saw Timmy, she began to turn head over heels as fast as she could. Timmy stared in wonder. What a dog! How could she turn somersaults like that? Sniffer, called George. Come on out, I know you're there. A pale, worried face looked out of the cave. Then Sniffer's thin, wiry little body followed, and soon he was standing in the quarry, looking scared. I got away from them, he said, nodding his head towards where the traveller's camp had been. He went up to George and gave a sniff. You said I could have a bike, he said. I know, said George. You shall have one, Sniffer. If you hadn't left us patrons in that hill, we'd never have escaped. And you said I could live in a house and ride my bike to school, said Sniffer urgently. I can't go back to my father. He'd half kill me now. He saw those patrons I left in the hill, and he chased me all over the moor for miles. But he didn't catch me. I hid. We'll do the best we can for you, promised Julian. Sorry for this little waif. Sniffer sniffed. Where's that hanky? demanded George. He pulled it out of his pocket, still clean and folded. 
He beamed at her. You're quite hopeless, said George. Listen, if you want to go to school, you'll have to stop that awful sniff and use your hanky, see? Sniffer nodded, but put the hanky carefully back into his pocket. Then the sergeant came into the quarry, and Sniffer fled at the sight of him. Funny little thing, said Julian. Well, I should imagine that his father will be sent to prison for his share in this affair, so Sniffer will be able to get his wish and leave the caravan life to live in a house. We might be able to get him into a good home. And I shall keep my word and take some money out of my savings bank and buy him a bicycle, said George. He deserves it. Oh, do look at Liz, simply adoring Timmy in his patch. Don't look so important, Tim. It's only a patch on your cut. Sniffer, called Julian, come back. You needn't be afraid of this policeman. He's a friend of ours. He'll help us choose a bicycle for you. The sergeant looked extremely surprised at this remark, but at any rate, it brought Sniffer back at once. Well, we'll go back now, said the sergeant. We've got what we want, and Wilkins has already started back to get somebody on to watching the travellers. Once we find out who they have to report to about this forged money, we shall feel happy. I hope Wilkins went along down the railway, said Julian. It's so easy to get lost on this moor. Yes, he had the sense to do that after hearing how you got lost, said the sergeant. Oh, it's wonderful up here, isn't it? So peaceful and quiet and calm. Yes, you'd never think that mysteries could happen up here, would you? said Dick. Old ones and new ones. Well, I'm glad we happened to be mixed up in the newest one. It was quite an adventure. They all went back to the stables to find that it was now almost lunchtime and that everyone had a large appetite to match the very large lunch that Mrs. Johnson had got ready. The girls went upstairs to wash. George went into Henry's room. Henry, she said, thanks most awfully. You're as good as a boy any day. Thanks, George, said Henry, surprised. You're better than a boy. Dick was passing the door and heard all this. He laughed and stuck his head in at the door. I say, do let me share in these compliments, he said. Just tell me I'm as good as a girl, will you? But all he got was a well-aimed hairbrush and a shoe, and he fled away laughing. Anne gazed out of her bedroom window over the moor. It looked so peaceful and serene under the April sun. No mystery about it now. All the same, it's a good name for you, said Anne. You're full of mystery and adventure, and your last adventure waited for us to come and share it. I really think I'd call this adventure Five Go to Mystery Moor. It's a good name, Anne. We'll call it that, too. That was Five Go to Mystery Moor by Enid Blyton. Read by Jan Francis.